Hello and welcome to Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast, a podcast to inspire you about outdoor travel and activities in the UK and across the world. I'm Hannah and you can email me with your thoughts or your questions on live at cicerone.co.uk. In this episode, we're covering the highlights of our live events on the Dolomites. Sadly, Gillian Price had COVID, so she was unable to join us. But we may do pretty well, I think, with Joe Williams, who is a Dolomites enthusiast. We had lots of questions and we had a great time discussing these incredible mountains in northeastern Italy. So over to Joe for an introduction to the Dolomites. It's really exciting to be talking about the Dolomites because like anyone who's ever been to that mountain range, for some reason it instantly becomes your favourite and a place that you really want to go back to. And I've done all sorts of stuff uh, in the Dolomites over the years. Um, so it's going to be fun to have a little little roundup of, uh, of the kind of things that you can do. And we'll also talk about some of the Cicerone books that there are to, um, to different parts of Dolomites and the various different kind of activities. Um, but yeah, I'm going to go through those uh, those activities, talk about a few things, talk about some food, because that's a pretty <laughs> a pretty core component of um, uh, of the Dolomites. But obviously, like mountains in general, you know, you, you know, we power ourselves on food. Uh, when we're on these um, on these adventures and the Dolomites got some really good stuff there and also Gillian would never forgive us if we didn't talk about the food yes definitely she always um, yeah this is Gillian in uh, in in the photo here uh, with uh, yet another incredible uh, Dolomitic peak rising behind Gillian always makes a a point of uh, of mentioning food in uh, in her guides Uh, I mean Gillian's how many guides has Gillian written Tons. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be, over the years, I've ended up ended up being dozens, um, uh, specialising in Italy, other places as well, but particularly uh, various parts of Italy. And food's always going to be a really core feature uh, of those kind of trips. The first thing I'll just kind of mention activity-wise is uh, rock climbing, uh, as one of the, the the core activities to do uh, to do there. Uh, this is just a picture of me a few years ago on a. Um, incredibly long uh long rock climb i think this was a rock climb that was about 1500 meters long of just solid solid hand over hand uh, rock climbing but the whole place is covered in uh, in massive amounts of rock climbing uh the other thing to mention uh, i guess of books that cicerone don't have is uh cycling uh, that you can do in the dolomites it's one of the best areas for uh, road cycling uh, in Italy with amazing steep passes winding their way up. But also it's it's starting to get recognised as a gravel biking uh, location uh, and for mountain biking too, because they're, they're just the, yeah, the tracks and the trails are just perfect for uh, for riding, uh, riding there. I think it would make a really nice cycling uh, holiday uh, as well. But as we'll see, like, a great place to do all sorts of activities. We do, we do often say that places are a, an outdoor playground, but like that is definitely true with the Dolomites. Yeah, definitely. Uh, in fact, you know, I'm thinking, well, we've got a few mountain adventures books uh, that cover various parts of, uh, of the Alps. We've got Innsbruck, we've got Chamonix, we've got the Morien. Um, and uh, I'm thinking of Dolomites mountain adventures. That would make a pretty that nice book. Cool. Yeah, one, one for the list, I think. <laughs> Skiing and uh, and winter activities. I think many people have been to been to the Dolomites to to some of the ski resorts. Uh, but getting away from the ski resorts, we've got the off piste skiing, um, of which there's uh, just a huge amount to do. Quite a lot of the time, you can get a lift up 
up high, do a bit of a uh, bit of off-piece skiing around, uh, a bit of touring, and then maybe drop down a steep uh, a steep gully, do some do some fresh turns in some fresh powder, and uh, and then be back down in the valley for a, for a nice lunch. Um, again, food always being an important consideration. <laughs> But again, the the if uh, if skiing's a bit um, a bit out of your kind of experience um, range, then snowshoeing is a really good thing to do, and it requires almost no skill, kind of almost no skill whatsoever. It's a really fun thing to do to to rent a pair of um, of these snowshoes, and you feel a bit goofy, you know, walking around like this. Um, but that you soon get the hang of it. Is that the one that's like tennis? Tennis rackets, yeah, kind of walking on tennis rackets. That would be the old school way of uh, old way of looking at it. Yeah, but yeah, it's pretty it's pretty fun, and they're easy to rent um, when you're out there. So you don't need to spend you know hundred pounds or whatever it might be to um, uh, to, to actually buy any of them. Um, but yeah, it's some wonderful, wonderful touring uh, skiing in uh, in the Dolomites. And now this is the the I guess one of the things that Dolomites is really most famous for Via Ferrata's. Uh, so the Via Ferrata kind of means uh, Iron Way, um, and the they've got quite old origins. Many people know this story, but for those that don't, it, the 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 roots stem from um, ways that were devised in the First World War for soldiers to be able to navigate around um, safely around uh, steep rock faces to get from one maybe defensive position to an attacking position or whatever it might be. But it allows them to uh, to safely um, climb uh, on peaks without needing ropes and things like that. So basically, you've got a metal cable and you're wearing a harness, you've got a helmet on, and you've got a couple of um, um, uh, shock-absorbing uh, slings or lanyards, and you just hook yourself onto the cable, and then you're going along the cable. So you've always got like a safe safe uh, clip-in point. But Via Ferratas can vary uh, massively to, I guess, what you might call like a protected walk, where... Uh, it might be a little bit exposed beneath you. Um, you know, you, that could be a could be a bit of a danger if you were to slip and fall off. So you've got that protection through to things that are vertical or even overhanging. There are very overhanging via ferratas that are uh, maybe you're climbing up a ladder that's been bolted to the rock face, um, and it requires a lot of arm strength. And um, that's that's pretty fun, but quite quite hard work actually. But it. Thing with Viafratas, it allows you to get into these like outrageous sort of positions where there's huge exposure beneath you. <laughs> if this is your kind of thing, um, I've only and... done Viafrata once, and the, it was a mixture of a bit of overhanging and yeah. a, and a bit where it was just like a walk. And on the really tricky bit, knowing that I was connected didn't actually seem to offer me that much comfort. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it still felt like, yeah, I know I'm not mean. sure it's for me. <laughs> they, they, can be, they can be pretty scary, uh, actually. But yeah, the Dolomites has got um, things of all different kind of uh, difficulty ranges. There's another cool thing that you can do, which is actually hut-to-hut via ferratas. So basically imagining that you're doing like a track and staying in a, in a mountain hut each night, but actually be travelling via Via Ferrata uh, each day. Um, I've done that in the in the Brenta uh, Dolomites, which is in the southwest uh, of the area. Um, it just makes a really quite cool uh, alternative little holiday. Um, so yeah, Via Ferratas, that's the good stuff. Uh, day walking uh, in the Dolomites. Um, I mean, there's... 
this is a huge area, uh, so there's so much variety uh, that we can that we can do here. Um, the day walking again, it varies uh, enormously in its uh, difficulty. But a lot of the time with the day walking, you've got more of that opportunity to sort of experience the uh, the history um, uh, of the area. You know, seeing some of these uh, wartime kind of uh, environments and then um, engaging a bit more in the, the, the cultural side of things. And uh, again, it can be from lower down in the valleys to walking right up to summits. So there's some lovely day walking to be done. And that's in the shorter walks in the Dolomites uh, guidebook. Then we can move on to um, on some of the trekking and the hut to hut sort of things. There's a nice book that we have called Walking in the Dolomites, which presents, uh, I guess you could call them like short treks, sort of uh two three four maybe up to five day long um kind of mini treks um always staying in uh, in mountain huts so that's the kind of nice uh thing that can be done just for a quick holiday like even a long weekend you could get yourself over to the over to the dolomites for um for a nice little little trek but this is um one of my uh one of my favorite huts uh in the dolomites um we found ourselves here um uh, in this hut uh, above a cloud cloud inversion uh, first thing in the morning. And um, like all these Dolomite huts, there's an amazing view. There's amazing, amazing mountains all around. Uh, there's amazing hospitality, you know, very friendly guardians uh, and great food. Uh, so it's a lovely experience. Look, speaking of food, <laughs> so we have to get started on this. Um, there... So this may be as a, an interesting example because this is a uh, these are two polenta dishes uh, that we've got here. Uh, we can see that uh, Caroline in the photo is tucking into um, a breeze block uh, <laughs> size chunk of polenta covered in cheese, and uh, I've got a meat version. Uh, I don't think either of us made our way through this, despite us having uh, walked and run fifty kilometres before before getting to this point. But the food is oh, so good. <laughs> Um, other great memories of food I've got are um, fresh um, gnocchi, uh, purple gnocchi. Have you had purple gnocchi? I don't think deliberately. No, <laughs> just an accident. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, I deliberately had uh, purple gnocchi um, uh, from a mountain hut uh, for lunch. I think this is one of my favourites, um, Kaiserschmarrn, uh, which is a sort of, uh, that sounds like a German word. Um, and of course it is, because the northern part of the Dolomites is um, abutting uh, Austria, and they speak German uh, up there. But they, also, they speak Italian too, and um, and then English uh, sometimes as well. But you often need to be switching in between uh, different languages uh, up here. But this, I guess, maybe looks like a little bit ugly, but that was incredibly tasty. It looks like it's a meal that you're halfway through. But apparently they kind of deliberately mess it up again. Yeah, they, they they chop it up and kind of make it look a bit a bit tatty. I'm not quite sure why they do that, but it's it's part of the fun of it. Uh, but no, that we didn't actually get started on that one uh, already before that photo. Okay, so to the two uh, the two the two big hitters uh, in the Dolomites, Altavia One and Altavia Two. So these are the two main long distance uh, treks, and they're the kind of things that uh, a lot of people have heard of. We'll start with Altavia One. Um, so Altavia 1 is 115 kilometres long and it's 11 stages or 11, 11 days. You're staying at mountain huts uh, all the time. You could be camping. Um, uh, that could be an option as well. Um, but generally huts are the best way to kind of really experience, experience the Dolomites. 
Altavir one is not too difficult. Uh, for example, if somebody has done something like the Tour of Mont Blanc, then going to do uh, AV1 would be a fine thing to do, not 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 really a, a particularly big step up. There are a few bits where there's a cable uh, to protect. Uh, where you, you don't need to like clip in with the carabiners or anything like that, but just, you know, just hanging onto it when it can be a little bit steep. The views are incredible. The history that um, that you can experience along the way, particularly when you come to mountains like uh, uh, Lagatsoi, where you can actually descend in, t- in the tunnels that the soldiers cut into the mountain in order to, you know, for, for their defensive positions. You can do that when you're on this uh, on this trek. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, so Altavia one highly recommended, uh, highly recommended. Altavia two. So I did Altavia two about four years ago. It's literally one of the best uh, the best trekking routes I've uh, I've ever done. I re- literally want to go back and do it again uh, right now. Uh, <laughs> I could quite happily just do laps uh, on Altavia two for the rest of my life. There's just so much to see, and it's so beautiful. This, for example, is uh, the view um, at the end of uh, day one. And, you know, that's just day one. And you've literally, you've got 13 more days where the scenery is like that every single day. And of course, you know, on a trek, it's always changing. Um, You're moving in the Dolomites from sort of like little kind of almost more like mini Dolomite mountain ranges to another little mini Dolomite mountain range. You end up passing, um, you know, uh, through a valley and then up into an, a higher area and then drop down to a road and then up oh, maybe there's the next the next mountain area to to get through. Altavia two is um, it's 160 kilometers, so it's about 100 miles, and it's hard. I think it's probably <laughs> I think it's probably fair to say that it is hard. It can be quite exposed in some places. Uh, there are some really large drops below the path. Sometimes it's generous to call it a path. Um, <laughs> there, there are sections that uh, we sort of started referring to as the sort of classic Alta Via Two kind of terrain, where it would be you know, a path, uh, a very, very large drop uh, below you, and then sometimes there'd be a cable. But actually, sometimes there just wouldn't be a cable. They expect. I don't know. I feel like the the people that maintain the route expect a certain comfort um, from hikers and trekkers to to be okay on that sort of terrain. Having said that, though, Gillian, who who wrote the AV one and AV two books, isn't a gung ho. Yeah, she's not a rock cr- climber. Climber. Yeah, yeah, she exactly. is a walker and a trekker, um, and she's she's not up for doing things that are too far out of that walking and trekking yeah. comfort zone. So it. A bit hairy at times. I think, yeah, that's the right way of putting it. Probably. It's it's not like dangerous. uh, Yeah, absolutely not. But if you really don't enjoy uh, drops uh, below you or ground that's particularly sort of technical and and slightly scrambly, then there are definitely days on Altavia 2 that you probably wouldn't wouldn't enjoy. Um, But if the odd bit of exposure is a a bit exciting and you're you're quite quite happy on your feet, then it's definitely great to do. There's also some some sections on it that can still be quite tough underfoot, like really bouldery and big steps down. I I found certainly a couple of the descents uh, on it like quite quite hard going. Yeah, I think it also there's a reason why we've got so many books to the Dolomites. Yeah. So for me, I wouldn't be ready for AV1 or AV2 at the minute. I yeah. think I'd go, I'd do some day walking, I'd have a couple of weekends 
maybe do a bit of a hut to hut thing. Yeah. Um, and then try AV1. And yeah. then if I loved AV1, I've built up that skill, the skill level and experience level and the ability to be comfortable with a massive drop right next to my feet type of exposure yeah. level and then try AV2. But for people like you that have, have done lots of challenging things like that and they thrive off that challenge, mm. there is nothing better. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, it's uh no it's uh it's brilliant and av2 and it fits well into if you've got like a two-week holiday uh that works quite nicely same with av1 you know you can uh quite easily um fit it in the other quite nice thing is we have to remember the dolomites are not very far from uh, uh venice um and verona two you know amazing italian cities so it's um it's perfectly doable to start or i think probably better to finish um your trip in the dolomites with maybe a day or a couple of days uh in one of those cities basically just doing a bit of bit of sightseeing uh and uh, obviously consuming some more some more more food but yeah you're right there are so many routes uh but there are also not just these Altavia 1 and Altavia 2, but there's Altavia 3, Altavia 4, <laughs> 5, and 6. Um, so, yeah, it, uh, I'm kind of thinking now, oh, which one do I want to do? Maybe number six. <laughs> but these are, these are routes that are covered in, in outline in our forthcoming Altavia 2 uh, book. Oh, actually, I need to remember uh, to say the, there's brand new books of the Altavia 1 and Altavia 2. Uh, Altavia 1 is already out, isn't it? We have Altavia 1. Oh, yeah. Look, it's, like, it's almost like we're professionals. Mm. We have a copy of Altavia 1 here, and it comes with its own map booklet with the compass mapping of the, the entire route. Um, so that's very handy. The AV2 book isn't out yet, but you can pre-order it on the website. Yeah, I'm so jealous of, uh, of Gillian. Gillian lives in lives in Venice, and on a clear day, they can see up to the mountains from their from their house. Very jealous. <laughs> if we did a mountain adventures in the Dolomites book, that would suit me. Yeah, I think so. that would be that would be a nice thing. I'll I'll have a think. Yeah, we should yeah. do that. <laughs> Stick it on the list. Yeah. This is the bad thing about working here is that we are never short of inspiration for places to go. No, and, it's, uh, it is a pretty it's pretty hard working here. Somebody tell the boss that we need more holiday. <laughs> <laughs> If you'd like to find out more about the Dolomites, you can have a look at cicerone.co.uk forward slash Dolomites. And you can find all our guidebooks, articles, the full recording of this live event, everything on there. You can also use the code Dolomites on our website to get 25% off any of our Dolomites guidebooks. I hope you enjoy exploring the Dolomites for yourself. You, you touched on this a little bit before about it being near Venice and Verona, um, but how easy is it to get to the start and finish points? Well, to the start points of the AV1 and 2. Yeah, so it, in short, it's, it's quite easy. I guess first I'll just touch on the train side of things, because that's always the, I think the, the first thing to think about is if you're going, for me, if you're going away for that amount of time, thinking about uh, what can I get there by train uh, rather than flying as the first first sort of option, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's not too hard. There's good connections that can take you through to uh, Milan and then across to Verona and then up uh, into the Dolomites, or you can come the other way uh, from uh, Austria. So good connections through to Munich, then round to Winsbrook, and then over the pass and into the Dolomite area. So that's good. We've got that kind of bit covered. Uh, so that's nice. And then there are a range of, uh, I guess, buses that can also connect us in. But in order to get to the start of Altavia 1, uh, it requires a 
basically it requires a train and a bus. Uh, and it's pretty pretty easy, not too time consuming. Altavia two is really easy to get to the start of. That's um, in the town of Bresanone, uh, which you might see on Google Maps, also called Brixen, because it's one of those kind of half German, half um, uh, Italian language uh, um, uh, cities um, in that kind of uh, northern region. And there's a train station there. Literally, you just get a train from Verona straight up to Bresanone, and um, and you're on the route, so that's uh, that's nice and easy. But it'd be com- also be quite common for people to fly to uh, to Venice. Verona's also got a, uh, an airport that's got some quite nice uh, connections too. But it, again, it's really easy just either um, taxi or a shuttle um, from the airport uh, to the train station. You don't have to go to the centre of Venice. There's the um, sort of uh, Venice uh, Maestro uh, station, and then you can shoot straight up into the Dolomites from there. It's like it's a couple of hours. Uh, really, it's not much longer than that. And then leaving uh, again, Altavia Two is a little bit easier to leave leave from because there's a train station in the town of Feltre, uh, which is a beautiful little. Um, it's kind of like uh, medieval, uh, actually, the, the centre of uh, Feltre. Again, with lots of good good train connections that can take you out um, back to back to Venice. Um, Altavia One again, there's a bus, and then you got a, you got a train. So it's no 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 big deal. You don't need to be doing anything like hitching um, or uh, getting taxis or anything like that. Keeping on this theme um, of how practical concerns, what are the huts like? How many huts are there, and how easy are they to get to? So the huts. You're thinking specifically about uh, Altavia One and Altavia Two. Uh, well, number one, they're everywhere, um, <laughs> and it's very. Uh, it's either very rare i actually can't think of a situation where you walk and do an entire day's walking without having got to a hut uh halfway um or even more times uh between that start and that finish uh, of that day so the huts are everywhere uh i mean there's also some hotels uh up there i think it's kind of worth uh worth bearing in mind that some sometimes you might choose to spend a night in in a hotel but the huts You've either got dormitory accommodation, uh, often they've got private rooms that you can choose. Uh, sometimes you can get a shower. In fact, you can usually get a shower in, <laughs> in, in most places, uh, which is quite nice. But yeah, the food, that's kind of the, the, <laughs> the main thing. Um, you, you're always going to get a, a, you know, like in any hut in the Alps, a standard um, set, set meal uh, every evening. Uh, with the starter of some kind, often it's like a soup, a uh, main meal of some kind. It could be a, um, uh, uh, well, in fact, in, in Italy, that's the starter might also be a pasta. And then we might go to a, a more hearty uh, main meal and then dessert, uh, of course. For vegetarians and vegans, I think it's a bit trickier. <laughs> um, the the vegetarian would go for the, the polenta smothered in cheese. That could work quite nicely, but I think... I think as a vegan, you'd struggle. Would it just be plain polenta? I think it probably would be. I mean, it's not to say that they're going to force feed you meat. At least, <laughs> but, you know, it's just not, gonna, not going to happen. They're going to do everything that they can. But it's worth bearing in mind that many of the huts are quite isolated. You know, there's not necessarily a road that leads up to there. So they're just going to they're going to do the best that they can um, within the yeah, limited resources that they've got. When we published a book a couple of years ago called The Hut Book, which is all about mountain huts, and it, it does seem to be a theme that people who run the huts, the guardians and, and the like, 
are always trying to be really, really helpful. Yeah. So I imagine that, you know, if they can do something for you, they absolutely would want to. Um, yeah, but- definitely. Definitely. I mean, sometimes language can be a bit of a struggle. I mean, it's useful to be able, I mean, I, I basically don't speak Italian, uh, but, you know, I can, I can say a few little bits here and there. I can, uh, I know how to, um, uh, use the phone to ring a hut guardian and ask for if they've got space for two beds in the dormitory tomorrow night. You know that those kind of questions. Um, but often, you know, if you're struggling, the uh, the guardian of the hut that you are in can help call the hut that you want to stay at maybe tomorrow night. You know, they can they can kind of help you out like that. But yeah, they're they're so knowledgeable um, and they've often got really good advice, like maybe saying, oh, actually, there's snow on that high pass at the moment. So you might want to take this route around here, you know, giving that sort of um, mountain expert information. Yes. So that was going to be my next question, because they are quite high and pointy. Yes. The Dolomites. What is the weather like? So I think you've got kind of two two sides to that. You've got weather and mountain conditions. Um, I'll just hit the first one first. If you're going there for walking, and that's obviously the, the main thing that we're talking about, but Via Ferrates as well would be the uh, fall into the same kind of bracket. Um, then June is about the earliest that you're likely to be able to go, perhaps in some May, sometimes in later in May, if it's been a really uh, low snowfall winter. But generally, you need to wait uh, through that spring and into the early summer for all the snow that's come down in the winter to melt. Um, otherwise, you're going to be finding yourself um, going up high passes that have got snow still in the tops of them. And that obviously could be could be a little bit risky uh, for a slip um if you're going up or down on that sort of thing and also the huts wouldn't be open would they if it wasn't suitable for them to be open yeah that's right as well you'd really struggle uh you'd really struggle so obviously the books uh tell you exactly when the huts open and that information is pretty pretty easy to find out the end of the season i've generally found to be middle or end of september um october you're starting to get some sort of some snow flurries uh coming down every, uh, every now and again uh, so that's that's your kind of um, your boundaries uh, from those conditions. But weather-wise, it's not too bad, uh, really. You know, it rains. It does rain. It'd be pretty rare for it to snow unless you're right on some of the peaks. But many of these routes are, you know, you know, not really going to some of the peaks. Some of them are sort of scraping three thousand meters some of the time, and definitely when you're up that high, then there can be quite a bit of uh, exposure. But ordinarily, you're walking in shorts and t-shirt. Uh, you need to maybe have a, a fleece or a synthetic layer uh, for a bit of warmth or um, windproof. And maybe it rains, so you need to stick your waterproofs on. But it, uh, I found it's pretty rare that it rains solidly for days. It doesn't seem to do that in my in my experience. <laughs> You've got to be prepared, though, because yeah. we had Maddie recently went to do the Camino in winter mm-hmm. and she was convinced it was going to rain and had all the kit for, for rain, as would be sensible and actually she had an an entire month of sunshine so you never can tell follow the advice that that Gillian gives in the books because absolutely she is the queen of the dolomites she knows everything (laughs) so again related to that a little bit what equipment do you need and this is not for via ferrata because for via ferrata you do need completely separate equipment and it's that's quite important that you make sure you get the right stuff for that but for the walking and the trekking what equipment would you take? 
Well, I'll just start with um, uh, Altavia 2 and that um, that Via Ferrata side of things. Think just for those that are thinking about Altavia 2, but um, maybe have found what I've been saying a bit off-putting. Altavia 2 is not a Via Ferrata route. There are some sections where there are some cables, and we maybe call that like protected walking, uh, but it's not a Via Ferrata. I have seen some people choose to just basically do as little as taking a sling, um, tying it around a climbing sling and a carabiner for a bit of extra protection. Some people have chosen to do that, but most people don't bother. They just, you know, use their hand um, uh, on the cable. That's definitely what I've done uh, in the past. So I don't think you need any technical uh, kit for that. But if we're doing trekking, uh, one of the most important things that we need is a sleeping bag liner. Uh, for the huts it's pretty much a, an essential item uh when you're in these mountain huts because they do provide bedding often of blankets sometimes it can be quite nice they actually give you a duvet um but uh, I, i'm a bit more used to the the more rustic kind of mountain <laughs> hut where they give you some um some very thick scratchy wool sheets um, that are quite quite unpleasant, really. Uh, but there are some really nice <laughs> there are some really nice bedding in some of these uh, Dolomite <laughs> huts. But you do need that sleeping bag uh, liner. Cash actually is uh, another useful one. Um, cash, actually, yeah, cash Oof. like like actual wow. physical physical money. Haven't seen that for a while. <laughs> yeah, I know. So c- because some of these huts haven't got um, very good. Uh, I guess communications uh, connections. We yeah, you do need to remember to bring to bring cash uh, in order to pay uh, for your for your night stay. It's worth bringing. I, it's worth bringing um, everything that you need for the duration of the trek uh, in terms of cash, because there's often not very many good places to be able to um, you know find an ATM um, to to get some more. Uh, that is yeah quite quite an important one. And uh, yeah, you don't want to be running out and be put on um, pot washing duty uh, for a few days until <laughs> yeah. uh, you earn your stay back. Um, what else would I say would be quite an essential bit of kit? I think thinking about footwear, uh, maybe. Um, I am not of the belief that boots are an absolute necessity. I think that's entirely up to the uh, individual but boots are not wrong. Uh, approach shoes are not wrong. Trail running shoes are not wrong. But something with some good grip uh, that gives you enough comfort. I think things to think about with the Dolomites is because it's limestone. It's quite it's quite spiky, uh, spiky rock. So really minimalist uh, shoes uh, actually might might be a bit uncomfortable uh, underfoot. Mm-hmm. So I think that's another thing to think about. But in general, you've just got your, your standard outdoor um outdoor gear you know making sure that you've got a good waterproof and is a compass necessary probably not to be honest i think it could get you out of some bother but the paths are all waymarked uh they've all got sort of um the colored uh, paint splashes on rocks every every 50 100 meters or something like that to keep you in the right direction there's no off-trail navigation that you need to do there's signposts everywhere that tell you where you're going and how long it's going to take there there's a book. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think if you're if you're getting your compass out on one of the walking routes, you you've got quite seriously wrong, actually. <laughs> Is this one of the the routes where you would need to take camping stuff in case you get to a hut and it's full? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, 
I would say that you shouldn't need to get yourself into that situation. With Altavia 1, it's a really popular route. There are quite a lot of walking holiday companies that uh, that offer it. And if you don't fancy doing any of this kind of organization um, uh, yourself, then that's going to be a really good option uh, to do one of the, to do Altavia 1 particularly, um, is booking onto a, tri- a trip where all those logistics are taken care of, uh, care of for you. But because there's lots of holiday companies, it does get booked up. Uh, and the huts do get booked up. Um, so actually, if you're thinking about it, you for this summer, I'd start having a think about where, um, what huts you want to stay at and when, and then start penciling in getting those booked in um, a month or a couple of months in advance of, uh, of when your trip is. Altavia 2 is um, is much less popular. It's getting more popular, definitely. Uh, but it's becoming, you know, it's becoming more a more renowned route. We often think of like the you know hardest trekking route in Europe as being um, the GR20 uh, in Corsica, and I think G- uh, Altavia 2 in the Dolomites is getting a bit more of a reputation as being um, you know a harder route to kind of to, to to go and have a try. When I did it in June. A few years ago, we didn't book huts in advance more than the day before uh, that we were booking that that next hut. But I think that's some people might find that a little bit risky uh, or a bit unsettling. Um, so booking a little bit ahead of time uh, might be a nice thing. There are options for camping, but there are places where it is, uh, you know, forbidden. Uh, or illegal uh, to camp, so you just need to be careful about um, about being aware of where, where those places are. But there are also actually campsites along um, both of these routes in in a few locations. So it could it's kind of a good option if you wanted to do like a bit of a mix and a match, um, uh, staying at a hut for a couple of nights, and then there's a campsite, and then you know going going along like that. I don't think I'd do that because um, I don't really like the idea of carrying any heavier bag than I. Can get away with yeah um i think that we're all well or we all should be like a bit lazy like that you know trying to get away with the lightest rucksack that you can possibly manage to make the experience a bit more pleasurable but yeah. i know some people do enjoy toiling under a heavy bag with the knowledge that they've got their got their camping equipment in the back like they're just in case I think camping is is an experience. I imagine, yeah. you know, unzipping your tent and looking out at the Dolomites oh, yeah. must just be spectacular. Yeah, that's true, that's true. But, you know, talking to Kev Reynolds when we were doing the hut book, yeah. and he just said staying in the huts is such an important part of the experience yep. that yeah. it is not that it's it's the same as your, your day, but it is a really important part of that trip. And it's keeping the whole system alive as well and That's the true. guardians and, and meeting people in the evening. And, you know, there's there's lots to it that's not just somewhere to stay for the night. Yeah, definitely. It is a really important part of that mountain culture. And how much does it cost to stay in one of these huts? 30 to 40 to 50 euros per person per night. Uh, for staying in a hut and that's going to be covering your food as well i think those kind of upper numbers are likely to cover you for having a few drinks maybe a um, couple of glasses of wine um or buying um some bottles of uh, of water because you can sometimes you need to do that if the, the water in the tap isn't actually uh, uh drinking water it's worth sort of 
uh, going for it and not saying, oh, well, we won't get the food. Because um, that that should be quite a strange uh, experience, uh, I think. And then, again, always opting to go to sleep in the, the dormitories. It's always going to be a bit cheaper than uh, some of the private rooms, depending on what you're, uh, uh, what you're into. Um, the other thing to remember is being a member of a uh, an alpine club of some kind. So in the UK, that could be the BMC, the Austrian Alpine Club, or the Alpine Club. We can also be members of the Swiss Alpine Club. Yeah, there's all sorts of these kind of clubs which get you a good discount. So uh, it's it's literally a no-brainer. Uh, and I think maybe I'd say a special plug for the Austrian Alpine Club, because with the Austrian Alpine Club, you get um, uh, mountain rescue insurance built into your membership, which is a really important thing to make sure that you've got um, uh, got covered uh, before before a trip like this, just just in case something was to happen and, uh, and you need to call a helicopter or to help you out or something like that. Uh, it looks like Anne has uh, has given us some really helpful uh, information. Anne says she's one of the companies that specialises in uh, trips to the Dolomites. And demand for huts this year is unprecedented. And that booking months in advance is absolutely essential on the popular routes. Yeah, really, really good advice. And it looks like I underestimated for how much to stay at a hut. Um, Anne mentioned that half board in the huts is typically 60 to 90 euros now in uh, in many of the huts. I guess everything everything's got more expensive over the past couple of months. It feels yeah. like it's kind of it's on quite a steep increase. But I think it's reasonable to pay more in the huts, in all honesty, because they have got to get everything up there. It's just more difficult, yeah. isn't it? They think in the valley somewhere, you're paying for the ability to stay in that particular room or that particular hotel or to have that view out of their balcony. Yeah. Whereas in the in the huts, you're you're much more paying towards the upkeep of the whole thing and the, the knowledge of the guides and everything that you've got there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, some of the huts, you know, sometimes they're even more like extensions of a farm or a, a, in France it would be called like a, a bergerie. Um, so like a, a high alpine uh, pasture and uh, the, there's a family up there and they, you know, they've got a big pile of cows that, uh, uh, and they're functioning pretty much like a dairy farm. So, um, you know, I've slept in the cow shed um, <laughs> on um, on a on a on a simple mattress and some nice scratchy blankets uh, before. But you know, again, dinner has uh, has often included things like uh, fresh yogurt and um, you know huge amounts of uh, of cheese that's come you know as fresh as it can be uh, straight straight from the farm um so there can be some really yeah really special uh, experiences uh, in the hut what i do like on um in the dolomites is because there are so many huts you can often stop at a hut for lunch um and i think that's quite that's quite rare a lot of the time because you know often you're uh you know you need to pack a sandwich maybe the hut's made you a packed lunch from or you've got some you know crusty baguette that's uh three days old now and some (laughs) some camembert or something that's stinking out your rucksack um but in the dolomites a lot of the time you can just stop at a hut for lunch i'm just going to recall uh refugio mulas uh, on Alta Via 2 that was a, a, a lunchtime spot and that's just as you're entering an area um, called the Palais de San Martino which is one of the like the best bits uh, of the Dolomites. There's these rock towers just shooting up everywhere you look and almost vertical scree slopes uh, all over the place and then there's this hut there in the middle of 
yeah, in the middle of these mountains. And I think, what, was, what did I have? It was a rusty, a potato <laughs> rusty with uh, with egg and, uh, and ham. It was mem- really memorable, actually, really memorable. They um, say to you, what was the day like when you were at this place? Oh, I can't remember, but the oh wow, the rusty ah, oh, that was amazing. Yeah, I I think I could I can remember every meal that I've ever had <laughs> in in a mountain hut. I'm, I'm pretty sure of it. They, yeah, they always do seem to be quite quite memorable. Yeah, I'm never sure whether it is it is genuinely the best food you've ever had when you're trekking, or if it's just that you are so grateful for anything. I'm not sure. I'm still not sure. Well, nine hours of uh, of unrelenting up and down uh, in the Dolomites, yeah, probably going to make that um, breeze block of polenta and cheese more appetising than it actually is. Yeah. Uh, we've got another quick question just come in. Um, would you say that the AV1 is less hard than the Tour of Monte Rosa, but a bit harder than the Tour of Mont Blanc? How does it compare to the Tour of Mont Blanc? And that's from Justine. Thanks, Justine. And you have done, actually... Tour of Monte Rosa and the Tour of Mont Blanc. So this is a good question for you. I, I have done all of those. How's routes. the food on all of those routes? <laughs> Ooh, no, don't. Well. We haven't got time for that. <laughs> I think actually it probably is right to put Altavia one somewhere between TMB and Tour of Monte Rosa. Tour of Monte Rosa is hard because the climbs are really long. It's actually ridiculous how long some of the climbs are. There are multiple. 1500 meter long uh coals that you need to go up on to Monte Rosa, which is insane uh really and there aren't any climbs that are remotely that long uh on Altavia one but like there are a few sort of slightly exposed scrambly bits there's a few bits like that on um on Monte Rosa but if you've done TMB and if you've done um uh Tour of Monte Rosa Altavia one will be fine yeah, it'll be absolutely fine. Yeah, and uh, don't forget the discount code, um, just the word Dolomites, if you want to get a discount on any of these books, if we have inspired you. Hopefully we have. That's kind of what we're here for. And hopefully we've helped answer some of your questions. Thank you for joining us. If you've got any more things that you want to research, if you have a look on our website, we have got over a thousand articles and there is a fair bit about the Dolomites on there. Um, you can have a look at the books. You can download sample routes for the books. So, yeah, check that out. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm pretty sure we've enjoyed it. I have. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks, everyone. And see you next time. I hope you enjoyed the latest episode of Footnotes the Cicerone podcast. I'd really love to know what you think or if there's anything you'd like us to cover in future episodes. A customer did request that we covered the Dolomites, so we do take your feedback seriously and it would be great to hear from you. Please email on live at cicerone.co.uk or leave a review on your podcast platform. You can follow or subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss new episodes or you can sign up to our newsletter for all our latest news, events and guidebooks. Visit cicerone.co.uk for further details. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, please come and join us on our social channels. We're on all the main ones as at Cicerone Press and we also have a Facebook group, Cicerone Connect, where you can meet and chat to other outdoor enthusiasts. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you soon.